0: Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
1: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you For 20% off your first system.
2: You are listening to Mist Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Mist Apex Podcast. I'm your host. Richard Spanner's ready. We are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. I'm sitting alone in my little blue shed on this muggy Sunday. But in the last few days, Matt and I have gone out and found some interesting people for you to talk to. So this week it is tech, tarmac and tactics. We've got Matthew Summerfield at the end of the show. From motorsport.com. We've got someone new for you in the form of Dr. Campbell Weddle, who is a track specialist. So he was involved, him and his company, laying down the surface at Singapore and Miami. So he's got some very relevant news about what went down on the surface at the weekend. And we've got the fantastic strategist, Mike Caulfield, with a very candid chat about pit wall to driver tensions. And it's a bit of a coup, really, having Mike on, given that he was. Literally an F1 strategist last season. But before we get into those things, I have two things to ask you to check out. On September the 3rd at Buckmore Park, we're going karting and we want you to come. Buckmore Park is a premium karting experience. It's one of the very best outdoor rental kart venues you could wish to go to. And I cannot tell you how much fun these events are. We're just buzzing. We're still buzzing off the event that we had two weeks ago. At Ella Park, and I promise you, no matter what ability level you are at, you will have someone to race. So, if you are at the highest level, you'll be tested by the likes of Brad and Kyle and Alex Van Jean, and and also several top club carters as well. But if you're a novice, if you're brand new, or you're too heavy, or you're just a bit rubbish, I promise you that our system will place you in great battles throughout the day. You get three sprint races where you'll maybe you'll dice with. Some some good people or some rubbish people uh, who you're better than or or some people that you're much worse than. But that settles down after a lap or two and you settle down into the people in your race that are around your level and your pace. And then you fight for a place in one of three finals where you will pretty much you will be with people in your general ability level. And then after that, we all pour into the bar and we have a jar um, or two and Mrs. Spanners and uh, Matt do rumpets. Uh, entertain us with a little bit of music as well. And then we tend to find a local hotel so that we can relax into the evening. But most importantly, don't be afraid to turn up alone. It's a very welcoming community and those who have come to previous events alone have quickly made friends and become uh, part of the gang and have come back again and again. Uh, So all ages and weight categories and experience levels welcome. Uh, We have trophies for the top guys, but we also have trophies for people who don't own their own suit. And then we have the Thunderbeast Cup for those of a more corporate mass. So please go to mistapexpodcast.com forward slash karting or click the link in the show note below. In the show notes below. And secondly, we're going to do another mailbag episode in the week leading up to Barcelona. So either Tuesday or Wednesday. Really enjoyed the one leading up to Miami. You gave us some fantastic questions and topic suggestions. so get those comments and questions into us. feedback at mistapex.net feedback at mistapex.net we're getting a lot better at actually sorting through reading, digesting, and answering those emails. So we want this to become like a staple of the missed Apex project. Also you can email me anytime spanners at mistapex.net. Now then on to our first interview. And it's with a real life F1 strategist, which is a bit crazy, really, having someone with such recent F1 pit wall experience talking to us in the shed. Uh, but in the Miami review, I noticed that it was an uncomfortable dynamic, is what I said, between Hamilton and the pit wall, culminating in the pit wall asking Lewis to make a decision as to whether they should get new tyres during the safety car. And then Hamilton expressing later that the team should have been the one to decide so I started the interview by asking him what he made of that conversation
3: yeah it's um I mean it was an it was an interesting one it's it's like you you kind of bring it on to the fact that they've given him the chance to make the call but I mean at the time of it I, I kind of thought it's a strange thing for them to do post-race though i've actually reviewed it a bit more and Mm -hmm. it's one of those situations actually where they didn't really they weren't really going to lose out either way so it it was a case of in this situation what does the driver feel like he's obviously been on the tires for quite a long time he's kind of trying to it's 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 his feedback coming through and no matter what call he made really it wasn't going to change the end result of the race so in 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 that kind of sense, it it makes more sense having looked at it post post um, yeah. post race rather than at the time. I was yeah a little bit surprised by
2: it. It's um, I guess one of the nightmare scenarios for for pit crew or, or for strategists is when that kind of decision comes as the cars are passing the pit lane. So if they're on the far side of the track, the whole pack. I'm guessing that that strategy call is is very different to when the leaders have started coming around to the pits?
3: Yeah, no, definitely is. Yes. I mean, especially those ones where it's and it's it's a a chance of an additional stop or something. It's it's um yeah, you you, you haven't got your windows open. It's a kind of it could be, can couldn't be. Um uh, I mean I, I imagine the pit crew was on standby for for this point. So if you decided to do it anyway they they would recovered well. But um yeah it's 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 definitely more more of a nervous situation in, in, in that respect. But it's one of those ones as well, is for how much information was being passed through in terms of the because obviously from a strategy's point of view, and this is the one where the when drivers make the calls, the drivers don't always have all the information just because you can't give them everything throughout the race. So it's it's when, when that one comes and you're giving it that option to the driver, it, it's it's a bit of pressure to put on the driver, really. But obviously someone like Lewis who's got Mil- well, millions i'm exaggerating years <laughs> of experience so and he, he knows the the situation so and they could they could have given him a good idea of the picture anyway but yeah it's it's still it's still something obviously last year you probably wouldn't have expected them to do whereas this year now that they're making that it's, it's, an, it's an interesting it's an interesting way of going about it
4: uh, so I want to ask Mercedes, and I don't know if they're unique in the field, but Mercedes only has one strategist for two drivers and right there where you said the end result didn't matter to me from a team point of view, you're correct. Russell or Hamilton are finishing one ahead of the other in those two places. We're taking home the same points. Do you think that if each driver had their own strategist, it might have changed what occurred there?
3: Um. I mean, you, you get into different issues if you start splitting splitting the strategy. So and I, and I think the way you, you say that they only have one strategist across the two. Actually, when I think you go back to the factory, they'll probably have a designated strategies per car, and then it comes through, filters through, and it's it's like the chief strategies decisions what takes precedence in over the over the course. And I think it's it's generally a standard thing amongst the field for that's how it works because otherwise you start getting into problems where your rules of engagement comes in. You've obviously got your second car trying to undercut your first car, which could actually potentially lead out of your missing points regardless. Um, so I think it's the, it's the correct way of managing the situation because otherwise you can get into all kinds of trouble. And actually, like you say, in this one, no matter what, the points were coming on are the same. But if you start messing around things earlier or, doing something that's a little bit different to try and outfox your own teammate, you potentially can lose the team um, more points than, than actually you should. Do.
2: And and of course the drivers are super, super understanding of all of that, Mike.
3: Um, It's, it's surprising. It's, it's, I mean, obviously in the heat of the moment, that they're not, but like, I mean, I think especially a team like Mercedes, which has gone through years of kind of team, team issues or not, not issues. That's the wrong word, but um, team orders or team, Preferences, rules of engagement, I think most teams refer to them as. So I think everyone, every driver knows as well, if you're the second car on the road, you're not going to get the preference, especially if you're close up to the first car, because you obviously have a chance of getting the favourable strategy when you're the second car on the road.
2: Oh, OK, so that's interesting, because on Sunday at Miami, uh, when you shuffle out for the pit stops, Hamilton was was leading he'd qualified ahead in the normal course of of pit strategies he would have come back out ahead but because russell was going long hoping for the safety car and it came in he does he count as the the, the leading car on track and and therefore get preference on the strategy because i i don't i didn't can't really recall the maths in my head but did that stop hamilton pitting the first time round the fact that russell was in
3: uh so no, wait, so he was obviously the car headed when it came round to, yeah, yeah the, the the safety cars. No, the, the VSC, what it was. So Russell was obviously making his stop, but he obviously had to make the stop. There was no decision there oh, because okay.
2: yeah, fair enough. he had
3: stopped yeah. in that point. And then obviously, if they'd stopped Lewis at that same point, he would have just been behind Russell, albeit on the same age tyres at that point, so maybe a, a fairer fight. But um, at the same time, you by stopping Russell, obviously gains back up to him. He's then behind Lewis on the fresher set of tyres, but Lewis has got the track position again, so it kind of swings in roundabouts. And it's it's one of these ones as well. It's Russell's strategy, while it played out well, they were relying on this safety car. They were relying on this, this window to come back into it. If there was no safety car, when Russell makes his stop, he I think he, I looked at it, he's coming out 18, 19 seconds behind Lewis. And seeing the amount of degradation we saw on these tyres at the weekend, He wasn't going to make that back up, even on a brand new set of tyres. The the hard tyres were resilient. They were strong. Well, you could see by the fact that Lewis and Bottas were behind Russell and weren't making any progress through, despite the massive age gap of the tyres there. So if there had been no safety car, then Russell would probably have finished 10, 15 seconds behind Lewis at the end of the race. And everyone's strategy's kind of worked. Him by going longer, he's gained the position for being out position at the beginning, and Lewis has finished above him at the end of the race. It's the same because I mean Mercedes tried this exactly at Saudi as well when Lewis was out of position, and then unfortunately Lewis, I mean I mean he made the comment in the race he's, he was screwed by a safety car again. And in Saudi, the exact thing which disadvantages hard runners happens, and you get a safety car lap fifteen to lap twenty. And if there'd been a safety car lap fifteen to lap twenty in this race, Russell would have been totally out of it. In fact, all the hard runners would have been totally disadvantaged yeah. by it. So it's unfortunately. It just does come down to luck in this one and you kind of come out of it and everyone's criticising or... I've seen criticism, sorry, of um, of Mercedes' strategy of Lewis, but in all honesty, there was nothing else. Everything was working. You always try and give your second car the best opportunity to make up positions. You hope it doesn't disadvantage your your lead car as such at that point, but in some situations it does.
2: I wonder, can someone draw out the stats of uh, what's the amount of safety cars in a row that have fallen completely against Lewis Hamilton at the moment. Um, I think it's definitely three in a it is row.
3: Three. Yeah, it is, it, is, it is. So definitely Saudi, um, Imola and Miami, yeah.
2: Um, oh, and four. then Abu Dhabi as well. So that's four.
3: And then four, if you can. Um, <laughs> yeah.
2: I thought we didn't talk about that anymore. So. Yeah, we don't talk about <laughs> Abu Dhabi. Yeah, no, no more singing from me. But does it make a difference with the personality of the driver? I just sensed a little bit of unease from the pit crew. And I remember an example going going back maybe five or ten years to Paul Resta at Force India. And I remember there was a, a few very tense exchanges between the pit crew or between the strategists and Paul DeResta. And eventually they came on the radio and I, I, this has stuck in my mind for all these years. They said, now, Paul, we're thinking about tyre strategy. You tell us when you want to come in. And it was very clearly a we're fed up of getting grief from you on the radio does that kind of thing start to play in I know I know Lewis can sound a bit fed up when a strategy call doesn't play out
3: um I think there's someone like Lewis I mean again you go back to he's got years of experience so you, you'd be daft a little bit not to listen to his feedback and listen to kind of his ideas but at the same time you've got a group of very experienced strategist there and a very very experienced people with more data than what lewis has in the car so it's it's uh it's sometimes you can yeah it, it can weigh on you it can build on you and and it's especially if it's a it's a strategy toss-up in in a sense of where you, it's it could go either way then at that point you go um yeah, okay. We'll take the driver's point of view in because at that point you go, Well, it's a 50-50 split. This could go either way. If the driver's saying one thing and we go against him and it goes the other way, you are in trouble. And at this point, you go, Well, you made the call.
2: Yeah. It does but...
3: take a bit of pressure off you. It puts the pressure on the driver, in fact, in that sense. So it it sometimes is a is a sensible way if there is that kind of split between the two where it's not much in there's no negative loss for the team. The driver, as long as the driver knows the ins and outs of doing both strategies.
2: Well, this
5: there is isn't it.
3: that harm really. But well, we, sometimes yeah. you do get, yeah, like some characters which may Yeah. Well,
2: um, well, yeah. We don't say we don't get the full radio transcript, do we? Yeah. But it didn't sound like they'd given Lewis the information to make that decision. But you rarely hear the strategist going, Look, the fifty-fifty Tosh, this is either win or bin. Do you want to go for it? Which is probably the most honest approach a lot of a lot of the time.
3: But at the same time, if um I think uh, Lewis has been with the team long enough, obviously, but like I think he would know just previous past experience if they're giving him the call, if 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 there was something like which was stupid about it, like he made the call and he was going to drop behind four cars, the team would say, No, you're not stopping, <laughs> etc. And it's like, whereas whereas it in the case where the team kind of relays it in a way where you're not giving away all the information, but I think the driver hopefully has that understanding that if he knows he the call's coming down to him. He's not going to lose out too too badly.
2: Um, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't give him all the rope in the world.
3: Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Matt? Yeah. Well,
4: I, I was really surprised by that, uh, mostly because of Hamilton's response. Well, you tell me what's best. It just kind of suggested that the way they presented the information to him didn't clearly delineate your choices to chase from behind on fresh tires or defend from ahead on used tires. Do you have a preference?
3: I mean, and that that could be it. Like you say, in the heat of the moment, it's it's that one where you kind of, yeah, you 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 want to try and give as much information. And I, I agree with you in that sense. But yeah, it potentially it could have been fed to him in a in a, in a better way of what the situation is going to be. Like when you start going into it in into it, you kind of say you've got a totally free pit window, or Russell's got a totally free pit window, so he'll be coming out directly behind you. Obviously, all this happens in the spare at the moment with the safety cars. You maybe can't get all this over to him. But, yeah, they, there is probably improvements they could make in terms of the information given to him. But I think from a team's point of view, they were probably, I don't know. Um, I can't answer this. I wasn't involved in him. But in a team's point of view, they were not going to lose out. They were, so they were, I think they were quite relaxed in the sense of, well, we need as much championship points as we can at this point. We're not going to favour one driver over the other we want to finish fifth or sixth or fourth or fifth or
2: whatever it was at the point from a a strategist point of view and, and your place within a within a team and a team's pecking order it must make a difference whether you've got a rookie or a superstar or say the son of the team owner and you know if if a driver was to to kick off and say i really don't like say a junior strategist and I can't work with them anymore, that that strategist's job is probably in genuine danger if it's a, a superstar or Lance Stroll that says it. If it's a rookie, obviously they carry less power. So it's got to change the dynamic between the pit wall and the driver.
3: Yeah, 100%. I mean, and this is where I think the upper team management needs to kind of sort things out. So obviously you mentioned the role of a junior strategist and the junior strategist should never be put under that kind of pressure or threat. But you kind of put your things forward and then it's up to your team principal or your chief race engineer or your spotting director, so someone in that kind of higher up role to have that in between with kind of a, a uh, like a Mr. Stroll or a Mr. Latifi, that kind of an aspect to kind of explain the situation and then kind of mediate between the two to kind of make it more pleasurable occasion. Because obviously the strategist, Oh, no, strategies. all they're trying to do is get the best result and they're trying to get the best result for each driver and they're like obviously can, both drivers can't win the race or both drivers can't get a podium etc and if especially if they're splitting qualifying you'll try and make up as much as you can but you always, the strategies have gone through all the numbers, they're going through all the kind of iterations, they're trying to do what's best but at the same time you have to get the buy-in from the driver as well mm-hmm. and if it, like you go back to the personality question if it's a personality and he's kind of up against it's like really against what the strategist is suggesting then you you're gonna have to even though you know you're 99% correcting what you're saying if you can't get him on board with it then you're gonna have to start listening to what he says unfortunately unfortunately from a strategist point of view but if the driver hasn't bought into it then his mindset's not going to be right and he's, he he's he he can potentially and I'm not saying they do this, but they can potentially look for ways for that strategy to fail just to try and prove themselves, right? So those do you
2: are know thoughts. what? I, I have wondered this, and please, Lewis fans, don't hate me, but I do get this negative feeling from Hamilton sometimes when it's not going his way, he then wants it to, to really not go his way to demonstrate that what he was saying was was right. So that's the first time I've heard a kind of confirmation that I might be wrong about Lewis, but in that driver's mindset, there is an argument between the pit walls sometimes and, and you don't want to like lose that argument by, by it not going as badly as you suggested it would if you didn't listen to me.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's obviously you can't prove it, but I think no. it's just, it is just human behavior. Human and it is a hundred percent in my times as well. It's, it's crossed my mind in that respect. So you're kind of thinking like, like I need to, I need to protect myself as much as I need to protect the team. Here. And yeah, if of he's
5: course.
3: fighting so hard against something you suggest, you're going, well, Okay, fine. It's on you now. I was like, um, and <laughs> I'll I'll give you the reasons of why you're wrong, but it's then up to you. <laughs> it's
2: like it's like this is. I'm really disappointed, Matt. This is just like, like any office up and down the country with the
4: internal politics. Oh, of course it is. I mean, and actually, I was originally going to ask, um, is it part of the job description being yelled at by angry
3: <laughs> drivers? Um, I mean, it's 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 that sounds like a yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'll take that for Put it yes. that way. It's um, I mean, it's it's. I, I'd I'd prefer. I, I I've been in a situation that I'd prefer the shouting and yelling rather than the um. Let's go back to the parent thing. Is the disappointed and, I'm just I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed in you gave you gave me that strategy and it didn't work out. And that makes <laughs> you feel terrible. It really makes you feel terrible.
2: So they can do that, and and people do, um, you know, comment and get sensitive about. Uh, criticism to Hamilton when he's on the radio, and he's going. I told you that wouldn't work out. It's not going well, man. Why did you pick me behind that man? But there's a there's a certain amount element of that which is expected. So I'm, I'm sure they have a working relationship where they know that he's not really like cursing their their descendants uh, and, and, and salting the earth. It's just normal emotion.
3: Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it goes back to the case that they don't have the information at the, uh, at the point. So like, all they see straight away is them behind in the diffuser of another car and then being p7 in instead of p6 or p5 mm-hmm. and then after the race you show exactly like you go through you talk with them you say well if we've done this and this this is where it's going to be and you kind of had that conversation you go, like, okay fair enough that's yeah that's what it was but at that time obviously they're working hard and all they can see is the podium slipping off into the distance and they're stuck behind another car and so their natural reaction is like I knew this was the wrong call and you're like, but then when you speak through them afterwards, you go, well, it wasn't the wrong call. Unfortunately, it was the only call. If we'd done this other call, you'd have been down in P10, so it's it's it's, it's that side of things. Uh,
4: yeah, so in a sense, I mean, I sort of, uh, I have a split mind here. I, I kind of wanted to ask a very specific Emily question, but instead I want to ask you as part of your job, is it kind of your worst nightmare when one of your drivers is slightly quicker in qualifying and the other one is slightly better in race pace. And you know oh, that nice. they're going to be fighting for that same piece of track for the entire race.
3: Um, it, it, I would not say it's a nightmare. It's, it's a, it's a nice, it actually, it's a nice problem to have, but it, it makes things difficult, especially when you're trying to fight other cars. And we've seen it a couple of times this season where was it Saudi when you had the Alpines fighting each other. And I think even to an extent in this race, you had the two Hasses fighting each other, where it's actually. The cars—they're actually taking time off each other because they're trying to overtake, and uh, they've got the DRS train. So, in that sense, you—you yeah—you'd like your cars to be in the correct order with the correct race pace, so they just have the enough gap between them so you can cover them all both off and you can attack other cars. I mean, the worst scenario is that your slower race pace car out qualifies your faster, and then and then you you then you have obviously the car right up behind the other one um and you kind of he's calling but he's faster he needs to get let through (laughs) he wants to make the first pit stop but obviously you have your rules for the lead car because he's qualified out qualified him he gets the say so then you pit him first and then that's where you have to try and get these offset strategies so and this is sometimes when you try and play for a kind of safety car because you say right in all standard rules we can't favor you over the other one that's that's not correct thing to do and and I am most teams will have these same rules, but you kind of say, right, but for the second car, we'll try and benefit you if a safety car comes out. So we'll run you longer. And then obviously if the front car's pitted, safety car comes out, Mm -hmm. you get that pit stop, you'll be out in front, and and that's how it is. And and sometimes you have these what are seen as unlucky scenarios, but at the same time, you're giving you're trying to make the most of these scenarios for your second cars as well, because you'd want to you want to try and benefit both cars and you're not And it's the fairest way of doing it because you obviously can't create a safety car. You can't create these red flag scenarios in in that aspect. But you're just trying to plan around if these these scenarios come up to to maximise the result of even your second car.
2: Here's a good one for the statisticians then, Matt. When was the last F1 race without a safety car? Yeah, exactly. So as a strategist now, you have to really factor in. When the safety car is coming out, as much as if the safety car is coming out, uh, Matt, I wanted to talk a, a little bit about uh, tactics. Did you have one last follow up on that?
4: Well, it it actually concerned what you just brought up, which is I'm assuming that if I'm the faster second car and and you're trying to make me feel better with that, oh, we'll run you longer. <laughs> that there's cars behind that are going to creep into that window on fresh tires. So, like, how long on average are we talking, like, an extra two, three laps and what are the real odds of that safety car? Like, like, what kind of a lottery ticket are you giving these drivers when you give them that strategy?
3: Well, uh, yeah, I mean that yeah, that's fair, and it varies track to track. And and like you said, it's like you'll never sacrifice the team result for that second driver. So if you say if they've got a threat of an undercut or a car's fitted, then it will. You might give them one lap. You might give them two laps. If you're in a kind of a nice position where you've got quite a bit of pace in the car and you've pulled out a six seven second gap in. You can maybe extend that stint six, seven laps, and and look for it. So obviously, the longer you run it, the more chance of a safety car coming in and out in that in in that situation. But you'll never put yourself as where you're at threat from being undercut by someone else and losing the team position. Um. So you will obviously run that as much as you can. Um. More on the other question of terms of your percentage odds of the safety car or doing something a little bit different this is where you look at the kind of track type so in some circuits doing this offset strategy where you run the hard and run long in the race because you know there's more chance like your, your Singapore basically your street circuits your Singapore's your Baku's yeah your, mm. your um th- those kind of rounds where there's a good chance that a safety car is going to come out of that part of the race or at any part oh. of the race but your benefit whereas potentially we're coming into some races now, Barcelona okay, it has safety cars, but there's, it's more of a natural track. There's more runoff. There's, more, there's less likelihood that a safety car comes out. And I think every strategist does the stats where you look at the safety car deployments over the previous five years to see a pattern. And then you look over the history of it as well, because not just is it the history throughout every race. You've, we obviously have had a change of race directors. You have a change of rules. After certain incidents happen, you have more chance of, things becoming safety cars rather than what they were before. So you look on the most recent one and someone like Barcelona would be kind of a case of, okay, it's, um, there's a good chance of a lap one, lap two safety car. But as the race goes on, as the field spreads mm. out, you're unlikely to, to, to get something on that. So you're less likely to do this kind of offset strategy because you're less likely to have mm. this kind of situation where, where something would present itself in, in this second half of the race.
4: Okay, this is one last random question. Do you ever look at someone who say having a bad streak at finishing races as part of these safety car calculations?
3: Uh, not really. No, no. <laughs> you, you did kind you of, have in mind? Back back in the day, you'd you'd look at kind of a bad streak in terms of if you like reliability kind of aspects of it. You, you see someone who's really struggling, but obviously reliability's improved significantly. But even now, all right, we've had a few reliabilities beginning this year, but. It's nothing to the point of you were seeing 6 seven semi-cars finish a race. You, you may get two, three retirements a race. And it's a pretty average over now the like last 10, 15 years.
2: Well, I think um, something that's changed a lot in F1 over the last maybe 10, 15 years is that qualifying's probably never been less important. So feeding off of Matt's point of you can have a driver that's either strong in or set up for Either quali or or the race, and it, it seems to me that Lewis Hamilton has always got you know one eye more on on race pace than quali setup. What what sort of thinking do you go into into your head where you go right? This is the race to concentrate on quali, obviously Monaco. But th- does that come in? And and I guess the difference between if you're at the front or somewhere in the midfield, and my goodness, you've done the whole spectrum of the field, haven't you, Mike, as a strategist?
3: Yeah, no, a hundred percent, and a lot, again, it's another calculation you do in terms of, like, your average of, if you gain one, like, if you gain one quality place, place um, mm. is the equivalent of gaining 0.2 race places, so, like, you, you favour that track to be your, your quality place, because you, say, like, your Monaco, obviously, your quality position mm. position's yeah. key, then there's other tracks, which is a little bit less so, and in previous years, obviously, with overtaking being difficult, your race pace was always more. Sorry, your quality pace was always more important than your race pace. But you still have that trade-off of okay, even if I favour quality pace by that much, I can't affect my race pace by. uh So
2: there, the com- there comes a the points where you go right. We just got to stop pushing on the raw pace yeah. for quality because Sunday's the most important. Yeah, because mm.
3: ultimately, if you're yeah, you've quality I mean I mean the Hass of twenty nineteen was the key one of this where we were getting p top fives, top sixes in in terms of qualifying. Yeah, and then after lap 10 we were down in 18th 19th because the cow was just going backwards and so that crossover was just was just um yeah just useless okay so
4: one thing that i've noticed um and i know spanners has noticed this too is that there's been a really big discrepancy this year between the dirty and clean side of the grid at the start is it ever a thing as a strategist where you try and work the driver's pace, give them a delta so that they're going to wind up on the clean side, the odd side of the grid, at the start of the race?
3: Uh, not really, no. So, like, I mean, obviously that's it starts coming out far too out of your hands. So obviously, you, you, if you get your top cars, it's it's maybe a little bit more doable, but once you're in that midfield battle, you, it's it's a random of of if you're going to be odd or evens really, because it's so tight there, you can easily lose two three places and obviously you lose two three places you shift from one side to grid to the other or whereas obviously at that top position yeah there have been occasions where you're you're obviously your p3 is a better, better position than p2 but again i think that's potentially some of the tracks we've had recently again being the street circuits or freshly relayed circuits like your melbourne obviously haven't been used for a couple of years freshly relayed miami freshly laid saudi street circuit now we're coming into your Barcelona's and yeah, and your Monaco. or Monaco is obviously the the curved grid, anyway, so you don't really get benefit there, I and mean, it's tight. But your Barcelona, is more your standard. There's always going to be an advantage to the the grid, the yeah. um, the clean side, just just pure purely because of that's how where everyone runs. But you actually find it's, I mean. It's it's a couple of meters, so it's it's still more about the driver performance and <laughs> those kind of things. Than... I
2: don't know. I could see Ferrari cracking a gearbox on Carlos signs to give Leclerc the clean side of the grid. I could see it happening.
3: Um, uh, but I mean, they, they've got previous on that. They, do, they, yes. did that in, they did that in Austin, didn't they? With um,
2: I thought with it was Interlagos Lagos with Massa.
3: It was, uh, uh, no, no, I if it was Austin. I yeah, they, was Austin.
2: they wouldn't have got out of, out of the ground, would they, if they'd done it at Interlagos to a Brazilian driver? Yeah. So it probably wasn't that. Um, j- just to end on, Mike, you really pricked my ears up uh, talking about the Haas of 2019 that was qualifying very well, but then not able to go and, and do the business in the race. Uh, famously, I think the biggest example of that was the 2013 Mercedes that was qualifying on pole by like a second and then couldn't do anything in the race. Was this a trait you found yourself with, and like, or or, or were you not able to make the trade off? I'm sure you'd have sacrificed a few grid spots for some race pace.
3: Nah, so I mean, the one in 2013, it was purely tires. So it was, it was the thing that the Merc was so hard on its tires. But in the qualifying, you got them up to to temperature. You just have to pace off them, but they just, yeah, you just couldn't. Couldn't sustain it in the race, and to be fair, is it? It was a little bit the same with the Haas in the in the nine in twenty nineteen as well. It was almost the same situation that you were able to get the tires, the rear tires working, have been kind of good balance, but then after two three laps in the race, especially in the third year where you lose that bit of downforce, they they were just sliding the rears. The rears were overheated and that was it. You would just had no grip. Well,
4: you are talking now about midfield teams. Do, do you think it's harder to be a strategist for a midfield team? Than for a top
3: team, hundred oh, percent. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I had this. Chat, I had this chat um, with Spanners um, last time, but it's. Is obviously there's more pressure on you at the top. It's obviously it's more publicised. You can throw a race win. You obviously have your characters like your Lewis and your Max, who, and the, and their fan base who are quite quick to criticise you on that aspect, um, or vocalise, or Twitter get you bombarded on Twitter. So on, on that side of things. There's obviously a hell of a lot of pressure on you that you can throw away a race win and it's quite public and you can see it. However, you, you're you generally fighting one other car, maybe two, but it's it's an, another team. So they're in the same situation. So you can quite easily plan out what you need to do if they do this or this or this. And sometimes it'll be a case of if you say, like Ferrari's seen this year, signs has been a bit down the grid and they've had Leclerc against Perez and Verstappen. And then you get the you get a team, you might be on pole, but you've got two cars behind you. So they have that great opportunity to try and get you in early with one car while pushing the other car along. So they're covering all scenarios and there's not much you can do about that. But that, that's about it. Whereas in the midfield, yeah, you're looking in front of you, you're looking behind you. It's so close between three, four teams at most given weekends. But you never get that gap to drop into. You've never got that enough pace to... That's another thing which is a great advantage at the front is often you can drive away from the field and you've got a pit stop gap, but you pit on lap 20 and you're dropping to third or fourth. Whereas in the midfield, you can't stop too early because you potentially drop behind... You you drop to almost last. And even then, the last place car isn't slow enough that you can just zoom past them again. And then you say you've got to kind of take that consideration in. But you're not going to hold you, yourself up or you've got to take your tyres into consideration, but then it's often a chain reaction effect. So if someone comes in, do you cover them or do you, do you kind of be proactive or reactive? So yeah, there's a lot more decisions in that midfield and it's, um there's a lot more going on. And, and at the same time, it's, it's the same aspect For you can easily, for some drivers getting, getting like seven, four, eight is a fantastic result. It's kind of, obviously they want to win, but you know where your car is. And if you've got three cars, three teams ahead of you, which are clearly ahead of you, yeah. And then if they finish seventh, is kind of your win. So you're looking to be that best of the rest. So, mm. but you've then got three other teams who are battling you for that kind of position. So I'm, again, I'm, yeah, it comes out to qualifying in that respect. Anyway, like if you can qualify you at the leader, that one, at least you then start dictating that kind of strategy rather than having to try and, do something, but potentially putting yourself at risk
2: at the same point. I wonder if uh, almost like in football, you know, you have these specialist managers that get brought in to get a team promoted, and then they get you know let go once they get to say the Premier League, and then another team trying to get promoted picks them up. Whether you'll have a, a specialist strategist who's just really good at like maximising and nicking that one point, and uh, if a team drops to the midfield, maybe you want to pick that guy instead. <laughs> yeah,
3: it's it's. I think. Uh, it, Every strategist up and down the field is like, I think, is experienced and and has that kind of good understanding of of the different roles. Maybe and I, I mentioned this to you other time. it's like, I know of myself was when I went from Mercedes to Haas and went from that lead into midfield. I was like, oh, there's a lot of things. There's oh, a couple of things I've got to take into consideration now. I mean, the first one, which was my biggest one, was Blue Flags. Just, oh, I haven't ever had to deal with Blue Flags before. First world problems. It was ama- it's amazing how much they can really affect your race, and it's really um, just killer. It. So it's um, it's just little little things like that where you don't consider, and you, because you've never had to experience that. So you just don't bring it into your equation. So, yeah, the there's potentially guys who are more experienced in that midfield, of fact, been through... That, those ins and outs of different situations. The same as like if you've only been a strategist at a team which is unfortunately done at the bottom of the grid, once you start getting up into that points bit and a bit of pressure comes on you, go, oh, I've got a chance of scoring points, that could potentially affect you a different yeah. way. So it's, uh...
2: And everyone's watching and you've got a driver with a massive fan base now. Okay, so we're going to offer you um, 80 million, I'm trying to think of a high number, 80 million uh, euros a year. Uh, you can pick the, which team you're going to be at not mentioning which team itself, but where do you want to be? Top, middle, or or at the bottom of the grid? Being able to to form and and look for surprises. Where do you want to be?
3: As a strategist,
2: yeah, as a strategist, yeah, uh,
3: as a strategist. Not as yeah. a driver,
2: I'm afraid. I can't make that happen in this scenario. Fine, I,
3: was, I, I don't think I'll be pretty sick in the in the car, and not as sick in the good way. um, <laughs> um I I I'm, from my experience, I really enjoyed the midfield stuff. I enjoyed that midfield stuff where you're on the brink of kind of Breaking into that kind of, you, all right, you may be never going to be top, but you know, there's that chance yeah. of if we, if we get everything right, if a couple of things go in our way, we've got a chance of a podium today. And that's really, I think, and it sounds strange, but it was, that was, I never quite got a podium with Haas, which was annoying. But I think if we got a podium with Haas, it would have been more satisfying than kind of getting a win with Mercedes. And just because, no, that yeah, makes sense. It's, yeah. It's just a lot of work. So, yeah so that kind of upper midfield region is definitely the most fun to be in the structures
4: okay i have a very specific question where you were talking about all the factors you had to pay attention to in the midfield how much of that comes to you like pit windows and stuff like that through software and how much of it is just human beings having to make decisions on the fly
3: uh it's it's definitely a bit of both it's um it's it's the software, so planning out what, well, like, looking at all your simulations and seeing what you're going to have to take into account and what you are kind of try and look for going forward. And then the next bit is then it's that thinking on the uh, is your human thinking is like you're looking at the situation around you. You're looking at so things like because you're not looking at just the car directly behind you. You may be looking at cars, three cars behind you because you're looking at when they have a pit window to stop because that may, may then trigger the pit stop. So you're like, well if he stops, then he's going to stop the next lap. So potentially we're stopping in three laps time. And then does that, does that do allow the car behind us? Cause maybe the car behind you is quicker than you, but you're holding them up. So you're like, is it too early? But like we, they still have enough tire performance, but they'll get the overcut on us if we go that early. And the, so you're, it's, you, you get all the software, which you can see this, but you're still having to use your experience and knowledge to kind of look at what your main threats are and what, the potential has come in and what's happening in one lap and what's happening in two laps. And, and that's kind of, that's where the experience and knowledge of a, of a, a good strategist, not not just a good strategist, but someone who's been in the sport and kind of understands the ins and outs of it. Um, it that, that's where that comes from, really.
2: Uh, Mike Caulfield, thank you for sharing that knowledge and insight and speciality with us. Um, you've got your Twitter account. It's all private. Can I still follow you at Mike Caulfield F1?
3: Yeah. I'll I'll, I'll take a look. I might might
2: unlock it at some point. Uh, Yes, Twitter can be... um, I have got an interesting (laughs) relationship with it at the moment as well. Uh, But uh, please say that you'll come back and give us some more insights. This has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much, Mike Caulfield. Wow, pretty chuffed with that. Hoping to get Mike back on semi-regularly because that is the kind of insight that we as mere shed dwellers can't really provide. So uh, I think we're definitely punching above our weight there in the F1 media stakes. And I hope you enjoyed it as well. If you want to give us feedback on that or you want to contribute to our mailbag episode in the week, the email address is feedback at mistapex.net or spanners at mistapex.net. All the links to the stuff we talk about is in the show notes below. Remember to check out the karting event on September 3rd, As well, And give all the crew a a follow on Twitter, if you do Twitter, or dive into our Facebook group, or maybe even be a patron in our Patreon Slack group and support the podcast. We are only here, genuinely only here, because of the support of our patrons. So patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex. That'll be a link in the show notes below as well. Now, moving on, we deployed Matt to go and catch up with a track expert and someone who lays F1 tarmac. So, let's learn a little something, shall we? And then after that, it will be tech time with Matthew Summerfield from motorsport.com.
1: Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans.
4: We are delighted to welcome to the Shed, no less than the Titan of Tarmac, the Emperor of Asphalt, Dr. Campbell Waddell, Managing Director from R3 Limited, who, amongst other things, designs and consults on racetrack services. Campbell, thanks for taking the time out from your post-Miami vacation to have a chat.
5: Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here.
4: Yeah, I have to say that in preparing for this, I did have a quick look at your thesis, and I must say there are lots of big words and complicated math in it. Thanks. (laughs)
5: Thanks. <laughs> I don't know if I fully understand it all, but. Uh, well, good. Um, I feel
4: better about that. Um, now, one of the reasons I'm really excited to talk to you is because while we all know that tires are the most important thing in motorsports, when absolutely. you got in touch with us, I realized that they're really only 50% of the equation.
5: Yep, that's true. It's, um, it's the part that's often missed. People don't tend to think about the surface component of the tire surface interaction.
4: And um, so now you were at the Miami Grand Prix and what did your company do there? Like, what were you on site to do?
5: So we were there uh, helping the designers um, and South Florida Florida Motorsports with the event. Uh, We were involved with the design works and the construction side of things um, as a consultant. We do a lot of work with um, uh, other areas in motorsport, shall we say, uh, where we help and um, then understand the surface component to the tire surface interface.
4: Okay, so when you talk about designing or assisting with the design, would that be like things like helping pick out the materials that the track is made out of or suggesting the best equipment or ways to put the asphalt down for the track?
5: Yes, to degree. So we we were consultants to help the local contractors with. Um, the material selection. We wrote the specification for the track surface, and um, so our original brief was to write the specification so that complied with the local Department of Transport and uh, highway regulations. Uh, and then we have a specialist laboratory in Belfast that we use to test materials as well.
4: But uh, the the surface in Miami did get a lot of attention last week. Um, can you explain a little bit about what was going on? and And why things turned out the way they did so the track
5: was designed specifically to make things difficult for the drivers um, and to uh, play with the tire surface interaction a little bit if you like and uh, so in terms of formula one tracks it was it was designed to have uh, high micro texture and would be a bit of an outlier but um yeah, we had a couple of issues during the week that weren't expected, so we had an unfortunate piece of plant that broke down. And that's caused the hydraulic oil spill. So we had to do an emergency repair um, and that was the main reason for the the issues.
4: All right. And um, I wonder, because they were complaining about the offline surfaces as well, was that responsible for why the offline surfaces were so slippery or was that just the nature of the track design itself?
2: No,
5: it wasn't really the nature of the track design. It's all to do with um, track surface evolution. And there was, there was you know, key lessons that had to be learned. But um, the, the surface, it was a busy construction site. It's a very, very tight circuit um, with a lot of traffic on it. Um, and the offline grip, it just took a lot longer to evolve. So it was, it was really just a track evolution issue.
4: Okay. Um, and you mentioned microtexture. Maybe not everybody knows what that word is. Could you could you explain a little bit about the materials in the track and what they're called and sort of how they work with the tire?
5: Yeah, sure. So so when you when you're looking at racetrack surface, um there's really two main components. Well, three actually. So you have different textures of the surface. So the tire itself um is interacting with two different textures in the surface you have what we would call microtexture, which is the roughness of the aggregate itself. So that's down to the micron level, a very, very small scale. Um, and that that uh, produces a component of the tire surface relationship uh, called adhesion. And uh, so it's more prominent in the wet and in racing standards, it's, it's more to do with um, the component of uh, tire wear. So when you think about tire wear and you hear drivers talking about tire wear, what's really happening is it's the, the microtexture of the aggregate roughening up um, and coming into contact with the tire as the tire rolls over that piece of aggregate. So it only happens in a, a, a minute second, or just a flash. And then we have macro texture, which is the other one you hear them talking about. So macro texture is normally measured in something called mean texture depth or mean profile depth. And it's the area between the aggregates, the slightly wider area. So we're still only talking millimeters in size. Um, but as the tire rolls over, the microtexture and the texture of the asphalt And essentially what's happening is the tire is moving sideways, you get that lateral force and that's what gives us tire degradation, basically.
4: Okay. So the micro texture is a little pokey up bits and the macro texture is the space between them?
5: Exactly. Yeah. If you look, sort of, if you look, if you take a microscope and you go right down into an aggregate and look at it, it looks like a mountain range. So it'll be lots of little peaks and these are called asperities, and the tire basically forms bonds. Very bit in a very short period of time. So the tire, as it's going over, forms a chemical bond and then breaks that bond, and that's that's what we're talking about by microtexture. Microtexture is the larger area, which is what the tires are more in contact with when you have, say, lateral forces. The tire turns around the corner.
4: All right. So I have one more question I want to ask you. Uh, we heard, uh, for example, when we went back to um, Turkey and they had resurfaced it, that they power washed the surface. And I know, again, in Miami, it was discussed that they power washed the surface why do they do this to newly laid surfaces when uh motorsports are coming in what what does it achieve from a technical point of view what are you trying to do for the uh, drivers
5: so the high pressure water retexturing um, is essentially used to remove excess bitumen so when you create a new asphalt you have um a layer of bitumen which is the binder that binds the aggregate together and holds it all in tight That bitumen from the construction process and the laying process, essentially, there's excess bitumen sits on the surface. And this is is the same on a racetrack, a road, a runway, it doesn't matter. What happens is you have um, a phenomenon called early life skid resistance phenomenon where the tyres are actually in contact with that bitumen rather than the component of the surface that's designed to do. So it takes anything between a couple of days to three to six months for that bitumen to wear off and for the asphalt to come up to its design life um, properties. So when you have uh, high-pressure water retexturing, all you're doing is taking that very fine layer of bitumen off the surface, um, and that opens up the texture a little bit and opens up the micro-texture, and it stops what we call planing, which is where, um, it, because it's really, really slippery in the wet, as soon as there's a little bit of moisture on it, you have tires in contact with a very smooth bitumen. When you take that off, you get the micro-texture from the aggregate coming through, which is the component of friction that uh, gives you the adhesion in the wet in particular.
4: Okay, um, so before we uh, get out of here, you've, you've helped explain so much about the track and how it works and a bit about how it's designed. Could you just talk us through how a track evolves over the weekend? Why did the commentators say things like, oh, the track is green or, oh, it's going to reverend? What are they really talking about there?
5: Yeah, that's a really good question and something that I don't think we have all the answers to and I don't think anybody does. And so there is there is track evolution and it is massive, particularly on a new track. Um it's not just from the formula one cars it's from everybody else that uses the surface as well so for example if you compare um say uh, a temporary circuit like singapore um baku uh, to something like emela you have a completely different set of surfaces you have a completely different set of uses so silverstone emola for example has a racing line that's almost carved into it there's rubber down it's from lots of different series um when an F1 car comes to a temporary circuit onto a new circuit, it, it evolves very, very quickly and it evolves through um through super cleaning, super polishing, basically the effect of the cars going down, downforce, pushing, pushing out and then rubber going down onto the surface. So it's almost smoothing over the micro texture um, and placing down a fine film on the surface itself. But nobody really fully understands that yet. And uh, as the most boring man in in motorsport, I think uh, we're we're working pretty hard on uh, having a look at how to understand that better.
4: (laughs) Well, I'm sure you understand it better than most of us do. But uh, so that's really fascinating. So a big part of the evolution is actually the material from the cars.
5: Or Well, well, sorry.
4: Sorry, this is one of my famous legendary pauses. Congratulations, you've met <laughs> one in person now. Uh, but it's also uh, the effect of the tires on the micro aggregate in particular is what you're suggesting.
5: Well, we think to a, to, to a degree, basically it's kind of what you see when you look back down the track, if you look at it the wrong way, as you in particular at sunset, you'll see the light bouncing off and coming back to it. So it's, it, looks, it looks almost polished where the racing line is and then where it's not. Um, and what you're getting is, is rubber going down um, or plastic going down, whatever you want to say the tyres are actually made of these days, um, and almost super polishing. So just a very, very fine polishing on. And um, As soon as you get rain, that changes and it washes it away. But it's also a super cleaning. So it's, it's basically blasting out any dirt detritus from the microtexture in the bottom of the asphalt out and away from the racing line, creating a very smooth contact patch for the tyres to go over. And then particularly for Formula One, when you go offline, you have things like uh, marbles that you hear people talking about and lying on the side of the road in dark and that's just gets pushed away from the side so and that it takes time for that to clean and to move as well
4: excellent well thanks for taking the time to come and have a little chat uh, give us a little bit of knowledge and um can we find you on the social somewhere is there some place you like people to come learn more about this exciting and fantastic <laughs> subject because i know you say it's boring but i i swear <laughs> i could go another 45 minutes if i could uh, unfortunately I lost his spanners at carting, so he gets to set the link through the technical interviews.
5: <laughs> yeah, sure. You can um, Yeah, well, you can find us on our website. We also have a LinkedIn page um, at R3 Limited. Um, that's pretty much about it. We don't do a whole lot of social media stuff, I'm afraid.
4: No worries. Uh, thanks much, and, and I hope you'll come back soon and uh, share some more knowledge with us.
5: Sure. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. <laughs>
2: And now, it's time for Tech Time. Tech Time.
4: It's time for Tech, and once again, our presence is graced by the hardest working man in Tech F1, Matthew Summerfield, aka Summers F1, who is technical editor at motorsport.com. It's good to see you again. Thanks for taking the time.
6: No problem. It's good to see you again, my golfing partner.
4: Indeed. I do have to wonder if you've not been secretly designing Vortex generators for your electric golf push cart there in your spare time.
6: Uh, Maybe I could do with some of those, actually.
4: All right. Well, we have a lot to talk about. Um, And the thing that I'd like to start with first, because I found it to be by far the most intriguing thing to come out of the Miami weekend, was the sudden appearance of a competitive Mercedes on Friday.
6: Yeah, I mean, it was a bit strange, wasn't it, to see them right there at the front? Uh, I do obviously th- feel that what's worth noting about this situation is the way in which a track evolves throughout the course of a weekend. And I think that's predominantly where we're seeing uh, what's happened to the majority of the teams, actually, throughout the M- Miami Grand Prix, uh, is that we've seen a very different type of track evolution because we're on a new circuit, new asphalt, very green, you know, not much action. Uh, aside from the F1 and, and W Series and that sort of stuff going on. Uh, and obviously when you're finding yourself at a new circuit like that, there's a lot to learn in terms of uh, developing the way in which that you want to target your lap time as well. So I do think that there's a lot of evolution between the Friday practice sessions and then into you know uh, Saturday's action, uh, be it for FP3 or qualifying. Uh, and I've, what we do have to remember is how teams tend to Go away from uh, a Friday session and then develop things back at the factory, you know, with the tools that they have there, including uh, simulators, etc. So I think there was a lot of migration uh, for the teams aside from Mercedes making time based upon uh, getting the best from the changing conditions. I think that Mercedes perhaps find, found a very good sweet spot on that Friday, but not so much obviously throughout the course of the rest of the weekend.
4: Well, yeah, and they were clearly, um, on on race day, we had significantly different track temperatures to what we saw on Friday, um, along with with rain overnight uh, taking away a lot of the grip. But what was interesting is they just genuinely didn't seem to be able to run the same pace on Saturday as on the Friday. And even with more grip available, you'd expect them to be sort of at least equaling their Friday pace. Did, so my first question would be, did did they make perhaps just a setup progression mistake uh,
6: overnight, and that's what cost them? Well, according to Mercedes, they didn't actually make too many setup changes uh, to, to the point that they can't kind of correlate where this uh, adjustment has occurred. Uh, they're still trying to get through the data now and understand exactly where that time loss has occurred but as I say, I think there's a there's a huge amount of migration at this particular track, just purely down to the fact that it's a brand new circuit, new asphalt. Other teams have had a, a higher learning curve between those sessions and have been able to act- extract more performance. But I think what also you have to remember is, is that Mercedes had a, a huge package of upgrades available to them at, at this race as well. And immediately it was clear that those things were working. It also, to me... Proves that the Arrow concept isn't fundamentally broken because they were able to achieve on Friday a time that was relative to the times that we were seeing throughout the course of the rest of the weekend. So there's something there that's changed. Obviously, there was more porpoising on the car during the Saturday as well, uh, that we must have obviously remember. So there's obviously something fundamentally different about the running conditions between Friday and Saturday that had. And a detrimental effect to the W13's performance. And it, you know, it something that was on both cars. It's not something that, you know, one driver was suddenly much quicker or slower than the other. It was something that's across the board, it has affected that car differently as we've transitioned into the next day of running. So I think Mercedes will learn a great deal from that, especially in terms of finding the sweet spot for the porpoising issue that they're struggling with you know that their issue is very different to the other teams in as much as that it affects them at lower speeds than everybody else and it continues into the braking zone so they've got a much wider band uh, of poor poison compared to other teams so when they moved into saturday and probably tried to lower the car a little to take more performance from that that's when they they seemingly had more and more of the the problems that they encountered
4: okay so you've kind of anticipated where i wanted to go with this which is I, you could look at Friday to Saturday as being a disaster because they couldn't figure out on the weekend how to replicate that performance. But you could also sort of look at it as real positive. It's proved the performance is there. They have reams of data coming off the car. Do you think, they, do you think the information they have now will be, will be something they can use to find a way out of the maze where they currently find themselves?
6: Yeah, I mean, data's king, obviously. So the more information that you can gather throughout the course of a race weekend, the more information you're going to have to then dive into when you come out the back end of a weekend to try to understand the problems that you're currently facing. Obviously, Mercedes have now had five races to to try to delve through that information, plus all the pre-season stuff. Uh, They are obviously bringing updates to the car throughout that period as well, which do seem to be progressing them in some ways. Uh, But they've still got, obviously, the fundamental problems underlying all of these, and that is effectively what is preventing them from being able to get really into the pack, which, you know, it was a false dawn on the Friday as much, you know, it really looked as if they were able to get into the pack and they had that performance at their their fingertips. But unfortunately, this weekend wasn't to be the case. And there'll be more experiments in Barcelona. There's word of them, obviously, trying out or back-to-back testing with the old side pod solution. Uh, that they brought to the first pre-season test i don't personally feel that that will uh, solve their problems because they had poor poison in the first test as well just as everybody else did uh, so you know fundamentally the, the the issues aren't going to go away but it will give them more information to work with and then to try to develop ideas that can improve the the situation they find themselves in certainly i i do believe that there's a lot of this to do with tires as we've mentioned in the past in terms of the way in which the tyre performs compared to what we've uh, come out with with the 13-inch tyre previously. You know, the sidewall is very different. The way that that the tyre deforms and compresses is very different. And obviously all the tools that they've had for over over a decade in terms of suspension has been taken away from them. So they're having to relearn a lot of things and hopefully uh, they can start to, to dial themselves in and get back in that chase up front.
4: Right, well, that was sort of my last question. We know they're bringing a lot to Barcelona. We know that's sort of been laid down as a marker. But I've also seen Toto make comments like it has a very... Like, this concept has an incredibly narrow setup window, that it's very finicky, even even on its best days. And I just wonder, to an extent, do you think that at this point, Mercedes is chasing the perfect at the expense of the good? Yeah, I mean... (laughs)
6: We've been here before with Mercedes, but at that point they had such an advantage over everybody that it it didn't really make too much of an issue because they were so far ahead of the chasing pack. But if we think back to 2017 when we had another regulation change that kind of went in the direction we're going in right now with the the floor and diffuser side of things, uh, and they struggled with that car. You know, It was termed to, to be a diva and had a narrow operating window. But this car appears to have an even narrower operating window which they managed to find on that friday but as the, as i say as the track evolved that they, they got out of that window and the track just fell away from them uh, and took away some of the pace so we're talking about temperatures we're talking about grip levels we're talking about a lot of things that are circuit specific in my opinion but that using those things that they've learnt in miami they can then translate that hopefully into additional performance as we go forward throughout the rest of the season
4: okay great well i think we're all sort of going to be looking at barcelona with bated breath to see what they bring and how it works um i do want to talk some more uh also about the ferrari red bull contest because it seems like the suddenly popular opinion is this is now red bull's championship to lose even though we're only on race five uh what, in your opinion, like what are we looking at between Red Bull and Ferrari right now on track? Why does Red Bull suddenly appear to be pulling away a little bit to have a little bit in hand over Ferrari?
6: Well, I think Bonotto's comments of later have been um, interesting in as much as that we haven't seen much development on the F 175 so far this season. And we are expecting to see an upgrade coming to the car for Barcelona. They actually had a new rear wing available for them in uh miami but chose not to run it we'll get to that shortly Uh, but i think that's where we're kind of seeing this uh difference in opinion as to who's currently where in in charge of the championship because ferrari have kind of stood still in many respects and because red bull have bought updates to almost every race they've eaten into the lead which ferrari technically had in the first place so it's kind of a bit of cat and mouse from a development standpoint and on top of that I feel that both those teams have kind of had a linear way of improving their performance uh, from the preseason tests all the way through until the Miami Grand Prix you know they're, they're, they're kind of in step with one another in terms of understanding their car neither of them have really unlocked more performance from setup than the other has and they're going about things in a very different way uh red bull have taken a more lower drag philosophy into this particular all set so they're running much less downforce front rear wing than ferrari are and so then that plays into tyre uh, preservation degradation uh and obviously how they use the tyres throughout the course of qualifying and the race and so we've got two very different approaches to how they're dealing with uh, the performance levels at each circuit. And I think we'll continue to see that play out throughout the course of the season as they just try to dial in against one another. You know, you you have to remember that in the past we've seen this kind of battle between Mercedes and Red Bull as well, whereas one will take one style uh, of downforce level into a circuit and, and take the pluses and minuses that come with that versus, you know, what what the other... Uh, approaches. So it's very interesting to see how close they are considering how different they're approaching the uh, the, the setup window. Uh,
4: yeah, it is. So if I'm understanding you correctly, are you essentially saying that the differences we're seeing on track are really down to setup choices made at the beginning of the weekend um where the teams decide how they can best extract the lowest consistent lap time in the race on Sunday?
6: Yeah, I mean, for example, Ferrari decided, and there's quotes out there from Bonotto suggesting that they decided not to run the low downforce rear wing that they'd taken to Miami. Now, it wasn't specific for that circuit, and this is something that we're going to see throughout the course of this season because of the budget cap. In previous years, we've seen teams bring specific upgrade packages just essentially for one race and almost throw them in the bin after that. Now, Miami, I would suggest in previous eras might have been one of those cases where you would have bought a rear wing that you might not have seen throughout the course of the rest of the season because you're specifically tailoring the car for the downforce and drag levels of that particular event. However, Ferrari decided at the beginning of that weekend that although they had that low downforce rear wing in tow and they'd included it in their car presentation documentation, uh, that they just didn't want to run it. And the reason they were doing that is because they wanted to run higher downforce and protect the tyres. They felt that there would be more performance to be gained from taking performance from the tyres than there would be in reducing drag. However, obviously, Red Bull took a slightly different route, uh, and you end up in the situation of cat and mouse, as I mentioned, whereby, you know, Max Verstappen, when he's able to attack, has less drag on his car. So, you know, he was losing out in the corners but he was able to get close in on, on the straights, uh, which makes it a fascinating battle both off the track in terms of development, but also on track because of the way uh, that the viewers get a, a good battle out front there.
4: Yeah, and it it's never dull because they make their time at different places. I, I did see a quote that um I think from Leclerc that they had chosen to have really quick tyre warm-up, which was, I think, most notably seen uh, post-safety car when he he had a chance on Verstappen, but he said that the rear wing, there was so much drag with the rear wing that he still couldn't get by him in the couple of laps where he had that advantage. Is this ultimately always going to be about tyres between these two?
6: Yeah, I mean, as I've mentioned in the past, it's always about tyres. And and as you just mentioned, I'll circle back in this particular conversation to Mercedes. Personally, from my opinion, on the Friday because of the temperatures and the track conditions, Mercedes were able to get in that window much quicker than they have been able to in the past. Uh, We know throughout the course of the four races that preceded Miami, that they've struggled with tyre warm up. Now, because of the track conditions on the Friday, they were able to get the tyre almost instantaneously in the window. And that is what led to this situation appearing. However, cooler temperatures on the Saturday, Sunday, and suddenly you're in a very different situation and I know Ferrari had a problem with graining uh on their on their tires because of this exact situation so you've set the car up but unfortunately the track has gone away from you in many respects and and so you have to manage that situation from in the cockpit rather than through setup change
4: okay so before we leave um you wrote a lovely article um talking about the Floor of the red bull and you pointed out what i thought was a really interesting development um which was what you're calling the ice skate what is the purpose of that is it just to keep the floor from descending below a minimum height or does it have uh, does it have other impacts um on on how the floor works for red bull as well
6: yeah i mean i didn't term it ice skate it's something that was picked up within the media uh, and in fact, I think it's something internal that that perhaps the team even call it because because of, of how it looks, it looks like an ice skate, and basically, I, I believe it has several purposes. Not only as you mentioned to to limit the the way in which that the floor meets to the floor in that outside section, it will also have benefits in terms of weight because then you can distribute the the load around the floor differently because of this particular uh, metal section in, in the floor. Uh, and obviously you've also got the airflow ramifications as well because you know it's a surface underneath the floor that can obviously guide airflow so you know it's going to make a, an impact on the direction of the airflow moving downstream uh in that particular region and obviously as we know that is in the region of the tunnels and the diffuser so it's going to have some performance impact there uh it's it's certainly not going to be something that we only see on the red bull Ferrari have already trialed their version uh, with their new floor that they took to Australia and haven't run since, uh, aside in the from the tyre test in Imola, and I, I do think that we would perhaps see other teams gravitate towards that solution uh, just because of the merits that it, it possibly can offer them. Um, I'm not sure we'll see them in the very short term. You know, we won't see stuff like that arriving for Barcelona for, for argument's sake because teams perhaps haven't seen. Uh, until recently Uh, but i do think that there is merit there and we will perhaps see other teams move in that direction yeah
4: great um last question and now this could be a political question but i noted with a certain amount of glee um that bonato casually mentioned at his uh post-race press conference that he felt like red bull Development was, well, he didn't say it was unsustainable, but I think he said more or less by our calculations, and we've been tracking everything they brought to the track and what we think it cost, they've blown through about 75% of what we estimate their development budget to be. So, from an entertaining strategic point of view, how accurate do you think that is? But also, um, as you've been at pains to point out to me, that's not the only constraint because we're going to see uh, rebalancing. Of wind tunnel and CFD time, and how do you think that's going to affect the battle going forward?
6: Okay, so I think there is a political element to that statement uh, just to try to keep an eye on uh, the budget cap side of things for their rivals. However, as I've already mentioned, we haven't really seen much from Ferrari and we have seen a great deal already from Red Bull. So there is a disproportionate amount of development uh, gone onto the two cars. So that, you know, it's obvious that you're going to make those kind of statements. However, what we have to remember here is that Bonotto's looking at it through the the, the eye of Ferrari in as much as how they operate and how their development budget would work and how the rest of their budget is split between the different departments. I would argue that how many times have we already seen the Ferrari in pieces? and how much of their budget has had to be allocated towards crash damage compared to development elsewhere on the car, Uh, that could fundamentally change how you do, obviously, add improvement to your car throughout the course of the season. And I do think this will be a very tactical battle come the end of the season, because obviously you, you will have to have had to set your stall out throughout the course, and if you've got money left over to spend, technically, in your budget, then you will be able to improve the car somewhat. But... I do think that it's a little early to be saying that, oh, Red Bull have spent too much money. They could be much, much better in other avenues of their budget, you know, the the way that they work with their partners, et cetera, uh, to get the best bang for their buck. So I do think it's a little early to be making those kind of statements, but it is an interesting observation based on where both of the teams are in terms of their development at this stage.
4: Okay. Uh, let's talk about Barcelona real quick. Um I know that Ferrari, I know that Mercedes have both said they are bringing pretty substantial developments to the race. And Barcelona was always the traditional race where that would happen. What other teams are, are you looking for or have you heard will be bringing uh, large or significant updates to Barcelona?
6: Well, I think, uh, as it uh, always has been, barcelona will be a traditional place where teams will make upgrades i know it's not the first european race anymore with having slotted imola in in front of it but it's still a place where teams have a huge pool of information and obviously it's representative of what we saw throughout pre-season or the first pre-season test so you know the teams do have all of that data to pull compared to bringing new parts to the car in terms of who you would expect to see parts from, I would probably suggest everybody, just purely because of being able to back-to-back the information from what they've had at the start of the year to now. And Barcelona being a fairly, well, is a high downforce circuit. So, you know, you, you what we've seen so far might be uh, a little less on the scales compared to what they could potentially bring uh, going forward. And obviously then we have the likes of Monaco coming up as well, where... Anything that you bring to Barcelona is going to be representative to Monaco in many ways as well. So I do expect a lot to, to be coming. Obviously, we've got Mercedes with their pre-season spec, and I would expect them to bring more parts as well uh, to to the party to try to understand the car better uh, and dial things out. And then Ferrari, as you mentioned, have already have already been quite clear that they will have an upgrade package. I hear that Alfa Romeo have something quite substantial and I would expect Alpine as well to have something in the pipeline. So there's quite a bit to be looking out for in Barcelona, I would, I would suspect. Uh, and obviously a lot of that then will carry on, on across to the higher downforce circuits as well.
4: Ah, oh, lovely. So I think before we get out of here, the last thing that, that might be worth paying attention to at this point uh, as, as we're headed through the first quarter of the season is is the power unit count because those are penalties and certainly if i look at ferrari red bull or i look at say you know uh, alpha tari alpine or there's a lot of very close constructor battles going on right now who is in trouble power unit wise who's on their first who's on their second and and who should we pay attention to who should we be watching for those first painful grid penalties
6: uh well i think that the biggest issue you've got really is alpine uh because that they've used a substantial amount of their pool already, uh so they're going to be looking at penalties at some point during the course of the season. Alonso has a a power unit that's in the bin and can't be used uh because it had a a failure that puts it outside of the pool. Uh, I know Alcon's in a slightly more favorable position, but I do think because of the way that Renault or alpine uh are running with only them as as you know using their power unit they are at a disadvantage to everybody else in terms of data. So they are always going to be on the back foot in that respect. Obviously, on top of that, then you've got Ferrari uh, or some of the Ferrari-powered teams uh, having taken more into their pool because of crash damage as well as uh, needing additional parts. Um, But it seems that the Mercedes-powered teams are doing or or favouring the best in the situation when it comes to usability of parts Um, and that might feed in later in the season when we have the uh, homologation points coming up in terms of uh, additional uh, ERS capability Uh, because if you kind of put your eggs in that basket and you do have uh, ERS components that are going to be added to the, the power unit to increase performance, if you've already gone through your threshold or you haven't got your timings right, then that could have an offset in terms of when you get those parts onto the car. But as I say, I think Alpine and Ferrari powered teams are the ones that are really potentially going to suffer the most in terms of uh, needing additional uh, components that will cause them penalties in the future. Uh, The Mercedes powered teams seem to be a little bit more favorable and and Honda are somewhere there in the middle. Or should I call them Red Bull? I still think it's a Honda. uh,
4: Honda Bull? Yeah, that'll work. I don't know. Um, Anyway, Thanks so much for taking the time to join us and talk through some of this tech. Where can people find you?
6: Best place, as always, is to find me on the Twitter, uh, and it is SummersF1.
4: Lovely. Well, I hope you'll come back soon and uh, look forward to it. Me too.
2: And that's it for this week. We'll catch you for a mailbag episode and hopefully see you on a go-karting track soon. I've been your host, Richard Spanners, ready. Until we see you next, work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Miss Apex Podcast.